Saturday, May 3, 1980, Miami County, Kansas. Mark and Barry, ages 17 and 14, decide to go fishing near Bull Creek in Miami County, Kansas, maybe an hour's drive south of Kansas City. The area is deserted countryside, soon to be underwater when the Marais de Sin Reservoir project is completed. After they tire of fishing, they go off to explore the nearby woods and fields. When Barry sees a fresh mound of dirt near the creek, the two teens walk over to look more closely. Ominously, the mound is 10 inches high, six feet long, and four feet wide. When they spot a piece of denim and a red shirt sticking up from the dirt, they poke gingerly at the cloth. They recoil at a terrible smell and cry out together, it's a body. Poking some more, they see what looks like it might be a knee. That's finally enough for our young adventurers. Barry yells, we better go tell my mom as they race away from the scene. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. There will be bad parenting. Utter stupidity. Host may hurt listeners' feelings give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas, has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or podcasting or psychology. I think I'm an expert in lots of things, though, and I'm not shy about sharing my thoughts. In this episode, you will hear some harsh things about people. It's hard to do research on this case without getting angry at some of the people. But please keep in mind, I don't know these people personally, and I tend to be judgmental. So some of what I say is strictly my opinion. I could be wrong. You can be the judge. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about a really sad murder. 
On April 17, 1980, stay-at-home mom Sue Ann Hobson leaves her home at 5425 West 103rd Terrace in Overland Park, Kansas. Overland Park is in Johnson County, Kansas. We talked about affluent Johnson County in last week's case. Just to recap, it's a wealthy suburban area south and west of downtown Kansas City, Missouri. Overland Park is a very nice part of Johnson County. Sue Ann is going to meet her husband, Ed Hobson, for a dinner date. Sue Ann, a stay-at-home mom, is 37, and Ed, a millwright for the Ralston Purina Company, is 38. Theirs is a blended family with two children at home, Ed's son, Kristen, called Chris by everyone, and Sue Ann's daughter, Suzanne, both are 13 years old, but Chris is a year behind Suzanne in school. Ed and Sue Ann have been married only about a year and a half. There are some issues at home, as you can imagine, but they are trying to work on the family relationships. When Ed and Sue Ann get home, 8.30ish, Suzanne is in her room, but Chris isn't in the house. Ed looks around, inside and outside, and can't find him. Sue Ann says she last saw Chris about 6.30 p.m., and Suzanne has no idea where he is. Ed takes off to search the neighborhood more thoroughly. When he still can't find Chris, he calls the police to report his 13-year-old son missing. Sue Ann and Ed come from different backgrounds. Sue Ann, upper middle class, and Ed is a hard-drinking, blue-collar union kind of guy. The Hobson family dynamic, which is bad, drives our story of murder. Sue Ann Sally was born August 1, 1942, in Kansas City, Missouri, to Don and Ruth Sally. That last name is S-A-L-L-E-E. She will be their only child. Don is an executive with the Marley Corporation, a cooling heating systems manufacturer, and he works for that company his entire career. Ruth is the stereotypical 50s housewife. The family moves to the affluent Kansas City suburb of Prairie Village, a small city located in Johnson County. Prairie Village is a wealthy area. In the 50s, Prairie Village would have been a new, trendy suburb in the greater Kansas City metro area. If you know the area, the address of the house where the Sallies lived is 2501 West 79th Terrace. Interestingly, that's very close to the house that the awful Dr. Deborah Green burned down with her children in it in 1995. That's the subject of legendary true crime author Anne Rule's book, Bitter Harvest. 
There's an excellent book on this case, too, called Family Affairs by reporter Andy Hoffman. I highly recommend both books to true crime buffs. According to Hoffman, the image of the happy family living in a two-story corner house on an oak-lined street was deceptive. Behind the closed doors and drawn curtains, Sue Ann's life was a chaotic mixture of love and abuse. She was victimized throughout her childhood by her mother's frightening, dramatic mood swings. I didn't know if I was going to be kissed or slapped when I came home from school. Like her father, Sue Ann became stoic when dealing with her mother's abusive tirades. Listeners, this upbringing produces a predictable result. Finally, Sue Ann goes off to the University of Kansas in Lawrence, and she promptly flunks out and has to come back home. Unhappy at home, she starts dating Jim Crum, a big blonde 20-year-old construction worker of whom her parents thoroughly disapprove. He is smitten with Sue Ann. She is much cooler, and he even suspects she's just using him to get back at her parents. Unfortunately, Sue Ann gets pregnant, and in the early 60s, options are very limited in this situation. So she and Jim marry, and their son Jimmy is born May 24, 1962. Jim works as a lineman for Kansas City Power and Light. Sue Ann makes no pretense of being a loving mother. Little Jimmy needs leg braces for a time, and she acts ashamed of him. Jim Crumb says, I don't think she was ever happy in her entire life as far as a normal person's concept of what happiness is. Her idea of happy was being able to spend money, keep ahead of the neighbors. Very perceptive. Sue Ann and Jim do stay married for several years. Sue Ann keeps an immaculate house. In fact, according to friends, she is obsessed with cleaning and organizing and redecorating. A daughter, Suzanne, is born to the couple in 1966. Sue Ann's relationship with her son goes from indifferent to outright hostile. Jimmy is hyperactive, and an exasperated Sue Ann becomes abusive, like her own mother. By 1968, the couple is in deep financial straits, in spite of the fact that Jim works three jobs to try to keep up with Sue Ann's spending. She takes a job as a secretary, starts an affair with a co-worker, and files for divorce. While Sue Ann is awarded custody of both children, she leaves her son Jimmy, only six years old, with her ex-husband. She takes only two-year-old Suzanne with her. 
Sue Ann goes to work for the Dreyfus Corporation. She does very well there, working her way up from switchboard operator to executive assistant. She has a long-running affair with an executive at the company who rents an apartment for her and Suzanne. Ultimately, he breaks off the relationship due to Sue Ann's possessiveness. This is hard for Sue Ann, who is used to controlling the men in her life. She takes the wise step of getting into therapy. Spoiler alert, listeners, the therapy won't do her much good. In the meantime, Jim Crom's life goes from bad to way worse. He drinks heavily and loses his job at KCPNL. Unable to cope with raising his son, he farms out Jimmy to different compassionate relatives in the area. Jimmy's chaotic adolescence has consequences. He begins drinking at a very young age and smoking dope by the sixth grade. However, he also likes to participate in wholesome activities like Boy Scouts and Little League. He is a bright kid and a very hard worker. As a young teenager, he works as the assistant manager at a local gas station. He will have almost no contact with his mother and sister over the years. When Suzanne is 12, she talks her mother into letting her start a relationship with her father and Jimmy, who is now 16. Ed Hobson is born March 16, 1942, in St. Joseph, Missouri. In contrast to Sue Ann's upper-middle-class upbringing, Ed is raised on a small farm near King City, Missouri, a very rural area north of Kansas City near the Iowa border. He is a big, blonde, outgoing guy. He and his older sister grow up in a relatively poor family. Ed serves a stint in the Navy and then moves to Kansas City for work at the age of 22. Later, he marries Shirley, a waitress much older than he is, with a 13-year-old daughter, Tanny, T-A-N-I. None of his family can understand the attraction to Shirley. They describe him as easygoing and accommodating, while Shirley is bossy and volatile. Everyone is surprised, including Shirley, when she gets pregnant in 1967 at the age of 41. Shirley is not happy at the thought of raising another child, but she gives birth to son Kristen, called Chris, and immediately becomes a loving but extremely overprotective mother to him. In 1973, a devastating tragedy strikes the Hobson family. Daughter Tanny is attending the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, which is three or four hours drive east of Kansas City. 
She is out at a bar one night with her boyfriend, Danny Hollinsworth. They get into a fight while driving home. He gets out and tells her that he is going to walk home. She starts to drive off, but according to Tanny, changes his mind and tries to flag her down. Unfortunately, it's dark, they've been drinking, and Tanny doesn't see him until it's too late. The last thing she remembers is his face smashing into the windshield. Horrifying. Tanny is arrested for manslaughter, but the charges are dismissed and Tanny is released. Listeners, it's the 70s and drunk driving wasn't taken nearly as seriously back then. And this does appear to be a tragic accident to the authorities. Not so much to me. Going down the rabbit hole a little, I think Tanny's story is questionable. I'm going to assume that it's clear from the condition of the truck and the body that Danny was struck while facing the truck. But how likely is it that even drunk, he would jump in front of the truck when it's going fast enough to kill him? I can only see that happening if the truck had just started rolling. In that case, it means Tanny floored it. I guess another scenario that might work is that he got a ways down the road before she pulled out and didn't realize how fast she was going and jumped in front of her impulsively. Maybe. But to me, the most likely scenario is she lost it and ran him down. Sorry, back out of the rabbit hole. In any case, Tanny is clearly stunned with grief and guilt and possibly justified remorse. Family and friends quickly go to Columbia to support her. I think she must have convinced everyone she was dealing with things okay because eventually she's left alone at her apartment in Columbia. When Ed and Shirley get back to Kansas City, they become worried after several attempts to reach her by phone. They go back to Columbia with her brother Chris, who is six at the time. Tanny has shot herself at the apartment with Danny's shotgun. Tragically, Chris is right there when they find the body. Tanny leaves a long, detailed suicide note. However, Ed refuses to accept that this was a suicide. He hounds the police, insisting it was murder. I couldn't find what his reasoning was. I'm guessing revenge on the part of Danny's family or friends, maybe. Police do buckle to the pressure put on them by Ed. A detective says he was so damned insistent that she was murdered that we reopened the case. 
there was absolutely no doubt it was a suicide. That child was definitely distraught. For years, and will continue to say, somebody murdered Tanny. Shirley and Ed divorce in 1974. Shirley dies of slow, painful death from cancer in 1976 at the age of only 49. Ed and Chris, still recovering from the tragedies, move to Johnson County and Ed begins a new job working at the Ralston Purina plant in Kansas City. Ed throws himself into doing things with Chris, fishing, hunting, skiing, whatever Chris wants to do. The fresh start is good for both of them. But Ed decides that a new mother for Chris is what they really need. He sets his cap for a pretty woman his own age who happens to work part-time running the snack bar at Ed and Chris's favorite roller rink. Unfortunately for everyone in this story, that woman was Sue Ann. Sue Ann is not looking for a husband like Ed. She thinks he is beneath her, too much like her first husband. And Ed and Jim do look a lot alike. Suzanne said, it was spooky. They were so much alike, especially their mannerisms, the way they smoked, drank coffee, talked. So Ed is smitten but Sue Ann is not interested. However, when Ed inherits money from a maiden aunt and starts driving a fancy car around, Sue Ann decides she might be interested after all. She quits her jobs and agrees to marry Ed. Sue Ann, Ed, Chris, and Suzanne all move into the house in Overland Park. Sue Ann looks forward to her life as a perfect housewife and mother with perfectly behaved children. Ed can't wait to play Ward Cleaver to her June. After just a few months of marriage, Ed even invites Jimmy to come live with them. Jimmy was over the moon about his chance for a relationship with his mother and sister. He saw Ed as the stable father figure he never had. It was a new beginning. I wanted to do everything right. I wanted her to be proud of me. I cut off the drugs. I started playing soccer. I didn't have anything holding me back. I didn't have a bad reputation. It was a new start. Listeners, disaster will not be long in coming. Both Ed and Sue Ann have trouble disciplining the children, and they have two spoiled 13-year-olds who are used to being only children. They're jealous of any attention that takes away from them. When Ed needs to discipline Suzanne, Suzanne appeals to her mother, who takes her side. Similarly, Chris runs to Ed when Sue Ann tries to discipline him. 
Sue Ann and Chris's relationship is especially bad. As we've seen, when things aren't perfect, Sue Ann becomes abusive. On top of everything else, Suzanne and Chris can't stand each other. Having Jimmy move in just exacerbates things. Of course, letting an emotionally troubled teenager with a history of drug and alcohol problems move into this hot mess was always going to make things worse. I really feel for Jimmy. Considering what he's been through in his short life, it's sad to see his dreams of a loving family crash and burn. Jimmy quickly sees what's up. His mother and sister are really strangers to him, and it turns out they don't like each other much either. All Sue Ann seems to care about is how things look to the neighbors. Jimmy had to transfer into the Shawnee Mission School District, one of the highest rated in the area. He doesn't have enough credits to graduate that year unless he doubles up on his courses. Sue Ann puts the pressure on him. You will graduate on time, especially after I brought you over here and have given you this nice home. Her unrelenting pressure on him to be perfect is too much. He goes back to doing drugs, asking one of his new classmates, Paul Sorrentino, spoiler alert, he'll be important to our story, if he can get him some LSD. During his time at the Hobsons, Jimmy is caught several times with drugs in the house and using stolen credit cards. In February 1980, he drops out of school and moves out. Sue Ann maintains contact with him, but mainly so she can tell him how much trouble she's having with her stepson, Chris. She also tells him that Chris is the one who ratted about the drugs and the stolen credit cards, and that Chris sometimes hits her and Suzanne. By the time Chris is reported missing, this marriage is not even two years old, and life in the Hobson household is headed for catastrophe. It's nearly a week before any sign of Chris is found. Ed is going crazy, alternating between sobbing and berating the police. In contrast, Sue Ann and Suzanne are noticeably indifferent. Then police receive a call from Ed that Chris's wallet has been found at Metcalf South Shopping Mall, not too far from where the Hobsons live. Police conduct the largest search ever in Johnson County for a missing person. On April 24th, Sue Ann is interviewed by reporter Jeffrey Unger of the Kansas City Star about the day Chris went missing. Everything was as normal as it ever is. However, she notes that Ed's shotgun went missing from the home that day. Furthermore, she tells the reporter about Tanny. Quote, 
Mrs. Hobson said that Kristen's half-sister died of a shotgun wound while she was a student at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Campus police said the woman died of a self-inflicted wound, unquote. Interesting that Sue Ann would feel the need to share that with the world. Ed and Sue Ann are pictured examining clothing found by police during the search. Ed looks worried. Sue Ann looks like she's just had her hair done. Ed is adamant that Chris did not run away. Police who've been looking into things are not so sure. They consider Chris running away or even committing suicide definite possibilities. They also find the family dynamic, especially Sue Ann's coldness to Chris, very troubling. As they interview friends and schoolmates, they begin to fear the worst for Chris. Rumors about Chris are flying around Overland Park schools, mainly because someone can't resist running his mouth. Again, with a murderer who can't keep his mouth shut. Layla Anderson, 18, has heard the rumors. They worry her because some of them are about Jimmy Crumb and his friend Paul Sorrentino. Paul is only 16, but Layla has a little crush on him. And he is a cute teenager. I looked him up in the Shawnee Mission South high school yearbook. Dark curly hair, brown eyes, and a nice smile. He's stocky, only five foot six. That's from the Kansas Department of Corrections website. Sorry, little spoiler there. Actually, his prison picture looks like an extra in a Godfather movie. And the image of a mafia tough guy is one Paul likes to put on as a teen. Paul's mother abandoned his family years ago, dad, two sons, and a daughter. Paul lives with his father in a Johnson County condo. He calls Layla for a ride on April 30th, 1980. When Layla picks Paul up, he asks if he can drive and she lets him. She asks him about the rumors that he and Jimmy were involved in Chris's disappearance. He readily admits that they killed Chris. Quote, because Jim's mom asked him to get rid of the kid and I owed Jimmy a favor. He said she told him she would pay to have my motorcycle fixed if I would help him. The kid was a real jerk. Now, you know, if we took you out there and we were sitting there playing with guns while you dug a hole, would you lay down in it? That's how stupid he was, unquote. This makes Layla sick to her stomach, but she lets Paul keep talking. There's a brief incident during the drive when a bird lands in the road in front of the car. Paul stops and honks. She says, you can murder a kid, but you can't run over a bird. Getting out of her car later, 
He warns her not to tell anybody. She tells him he should worry about all the other people he's told this story to. Layla wrestles with her conscience, but soon she goes to the Overland Park Police Department and tells Detectives Steve Moore and John Douglas what Paul said. The problem is that he didn't tell her where the body is other than vague out in the country near 248th Street. But she tells them everything she can remember him saying. The police are not completely surprised. They had a feeling the family members might be involved in Chris's disappearance, but they do have trouble wrapping their heads around the idea that a suburban housewife would get her own son to murder her stepson. So they're not taking everything Paul says for the absolute truth yet. Layla calls Paul on a recorded line from the station, pretending to be concerned about the body being found. She points out to him that it's been raining pretty hard lately, and that might cause the dirt over the body to sink in, and somebody might find the body. She tries to coax more information about the body location from him, but it's clear he's not really sure where they buried Chris. However, the police now have Paul on tape, admitting he participated in the murder. But they need the body and more evidence. Detective Moore says, quote, hopefully we can get a break. We're going to need some luck finding this kid. A lot of luck, unquote. The break he wants comes the very next day when two boys out fishing on May 3rd find Chris's lonely grave. The body discovered in Miami County is taken north up Interstate 35 to Shawnee Mission Medical Center in Merriam, Kansas, another little suburban enclave in Johnson County. It will be autopsied by pathologist Dr. James Bridgens, who immediately realizes it is Chris Hobson, the missing boy. He notifies the Overland Park detectives who get to the hospital within minutes. There are three shotgun wounds on the body, left side of the head, right side of the chest, and in the back of the head. Positive identification from dental records will take a few hours, but a team of detectives is already meeting to determine what to do next. The Miami County Sheriff Chuck Light has already called in the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. He quickly concedes leadership of the investigation to Detectives Moore and Douglas, who've been investigating the case for weeks now. While the team is deciding how to deploy, they are notified that Paul Sorrentino has called the Overland Park Police Department asking them to come to his apartment. Apparently, he is having a party and has accidentally gotten himself locked in handcuffs. I can't make this stuff up, listeners. 
Laughing a little at the situation, detectives promptly respond and bring a surprised Paul down to the police station. Then they bring Jimmy in. Moore and Douglas bring Ed and Sue Ann to OPPD and inform them there of Chris's death. Ed sobs while Sue Ann is solemn and composed. Paul tries to maintain an air of outraged innocence when he's told that he is the prime suspect in the murder of Chris Hobson. Then detectives play some of the tape of his conversation with Layla. He says, I want to see an attorney. I'm done talking to you. Too bad he wasn't done talking before he started bragging to his friends about killing a 13-year-old. Jimmy, on the other hand, is more than ready to talk. He makes a written statement admitting everything. He appears relieved to get it off his chest. Sue Ann starts off calm and collected. What's this all about? Could you tell me what's going on? You come to my house at midnight, take me away from my husband, and bring me to the police station? How dare you? No, she doesn't say how dare you, but I bet she wanted to. When told authorities think she was involved in Chris's murder, Sue Ann acts shocked. Detective Douglas calmly reads her her rights. When told about the murder, she insists that she was with her husband at the time of the murder. Yes, just as she arranged to be. When told that doesn't preclude her involvement in the murder conspiracy, she denies everything, except that she promised Jimmy a car. But not because she wanted him to commit murder. She just wanted to help her son out. When told Jimmy has implicated her in the plot, she changes her story and asks, quote, Do you know what it's like to have a 17-year-old son that you love desperately and that you want to help? Unquote. Listeners, I would have glared at her so hard and said, I do know what that's like, but you, Sue Ann Hobson, do not. She goes on trying to put all this on Jimmy. Quote, you try to keep him out of trouble and you want him to make something of himself and you want him to forget the hurt and the pain. We tried to get him psychiatric help. If I answer any more questions without an attorney, is that going to hurt my son? Unquote. Now Sue Ann is going to say that Jimmy admitted to her what happened and that she had not said anything in order to protect him. She remembers that he said he did it because Chris had narked on him about the credit cards and the drugs. But interestingly, she can't remember where or when he told her all this. When Detective Douglas points out that Paul is saying the same things Jimmy is, she gets a little ruffled, uh, 
but inexplicably agrees to take a polygraph test, which she fails miserably. Detectives then begin the frustrating task of trying to get Sue Ann to come clean. They confront her about the wallet found at the mall. She admits she planted it there the day after the murder, but only to direct attention away from Jimmy. Of course, now she has to admit that Jimmy told her about the murder the next day. Then, astonishingly, she throws her own daughter, Suzanne, to the wolves, too, saying she told Suzanne what Jimmy had told her, and Suzanne even went with her to the mall. What 13-year-old Suzanne knows is definitely something detectives need to look into. Jimmy has told them that she may have heard his mother talking about the plot to murder Chris. Surprisingly, Sue Ann agrees to let police talk with Suzanne at the house. What Suzanne has to say is chilling. The day of the murder, mother and daughter went to see Jimmy at his place. They talked in the parking lot. Sue Ann said that something had to be done about Chris. Jimmy said, we'll go out and get rid of him. Sue Ann said that she would get Ed out of the house. Suzanne says that the next day, her mother told her that Jimmy, quote, took care of Chris. Suzanne says, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know if they just beat him up or what. When he didn't come home, I figured that he'd been killed. Suzanne continued by saying her mother told her the night of the murder to be in the shower when Jimmy came over and to stay in her room. Asked about the wallet, she says her mother told her she put it at the mall the night of the murder. Armed with what Suzanne has to say, detectives go back to Sue Ann. She admits to almost everything, except she insists that she thought Jimmy was just going to scare Chris that night. Detective Douglas then arrests Sue Ann for the first-degree murder of her 13-year-old stepson. Finally, Sue Ann crumbles not over the loss of Chris or worry about what will happen to Jimmy. She's finally afraid for herself and she's angry. Listeners, I'm afraid I've let this episode get too long. So I'm going to make what you've heard so far part one. I'll go ahead and post this and then get part two out there as quick as I can. It shouldn't take long since I have everything ready to record for part two. I posted the links to the sources used for this episode in the show notes. These sources were especially important. 
Reporter Andy Hoffman's book, Family Affairs, was invaluable. His website is www.andyhoffmanbooks.com. Area newspapers provided excellent coverage of the case, particularly the Kansas City Star, Olathe Daily News, and the Columbia Missourian. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. Recently, I set up an email for the podcast, Prison City Murders, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blubrry. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars. I'll be back soon with part two of the case of the evil stepmother.